welcome to Marketing to Complex Industries, presented by Godfrey, a B2B marketing agency for industries like yours. On each episode, we feature conversations about the latest challenges, strategies, and technologies for B2B marketers. With us on the podcast this time is Dean Horowitz, Chief Product Officer and President of Comarc, short for Commercial Architecture. That's a multi-platform B2B media company serving early to mid-career architects and owners and developers, primarily in North America. Dean has spent his career connecting with audiences through contemporary media and communication practices, research, data, events, audience development, and big, profitable ideas. He's experienced with startups and Fortune 100 brands alike. He's been recognized in Folio, Publishing Executive, MeetingNet, and within diverse industries, such as building and construction, beauty, agriculture, woodworking, consumer enthusiast brands, and home furnishings. We're really excited to have Dean on the podcast. You're not going to want to miss this one. Hi, Dean. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Uh, You are the first non-Godfrey person to be on Marketing to Complex Industries. And uh, so as much of an honor as as that perhaps is. (laughs) This could ruin it for everyone that follows. (laughs) <laughs> it might. I will be my best for you, Scott and Godfrey. <laughs> you're you're setting the tone for the future. So okay. listen up, everybody. Um, but to start, let's let's dive in a little bit to your experience and background. Um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Uh, grew up in the great state of New Jersey, not far from your your beautiful offices, and then uh, Chicago, and now we're in North Carolina. I've always been intrigued by media. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to work on the school newspapers, college school newspaper, and then this was just something I really wanted to get into. And I found that B2B was the right place for me because it's great to be part of a, a market and being able to judge what you're providing that market, if that makes sense, you know, which narrow it down. Like, we're really fortunate. We work with architects and owners and developers and members of the team that help them fulfill a vision. And as a result, we know a lot about them and we can deliver content that hopefully, well, I shouldn't say hopefully, has to enrich their lives. So I love it. It's it's interesting that you mentioned uh, student newspaper. I was actually, um, I was a member of the staff of The Breeze, the James Madison University student newspaper when I was an undergrad. Uh, Tell me a little bit about about where you were and and what your role was there. Well, you're going to be incredibly jealous because I went to Rutgers. Nice. No, I usually get a laugh. That's, that's oh. yeah. And if somebody's from Harvard, like, you know how they always go, I, I studied in Cambridge. So I always try to say I studied in New Brunswick. Anyway, oh. <laughs> so it was in the Daily Targum. And uh, it was just a really great experience. It was funny. It was like the Lou Grant show was on then. And everybody was almost acting like they were a character from that show when they were at work. And I thought that was kind of kind of bizarre, but it was, it was a fun experience. It, it was a, an interesting program. I remember now when I was at the student newspaper, this will date both of us. Um, everybody, I, I remember one of the big features in the student newspaper at the time was how to get the Rachel haircut from friends. So nice. that, that gives you an era for my, uh, my student journalism career. Oh, that is great. So, <laughs> so did you 
how did you approach the content? Because they could go a lot of different ways. Well, I, I left a lot of that stuff to the the lifestyle desk and that kind of thing. I was actually a cartoonist. So I did uh, political cartoons and I had a comic strip at the time. Oh, that's cool. Oh, very cool. So that was that was during my art education. So it uh, it I, I think in, in both ways, you know, what we're talking about, uh, those experiences were were formative to lead us to where we are now. Yeah, no, that's interesting. But what you were doing there was incredibly difficult. Also, you had to communicate in a very small space what others could ramble on with words. Yes. And sometimes I did it well and then sometimes not. I guess that's, yeah, that's part of the deal though, isn't it? Especially, oh, yeah. especially at that age and forgiving yourself. <laughs> True. I, I wrote, so, I wrote a, a, a piece, uh, a music review with um, actually my best friend who was also going to school and uh, we got slammed for, <laughs> for our, for our music review. And I still feel it, you know, all these years. Real, what, what, uh, what kind of a music review was it? Wow. This is reliving the painful part, but so Southside Johnny, you know, when you're growing up in New Jersey, he was a big deal. He was, yeah. he, it was like part of your family. You went and saw him and that was something you did. And Huey Lewis in the news opened for him. And uh, we went pretty hard on Huey. And uh, if, if, if I spend a few minutes, I probably remember the guy's name who wrote this, <laughs> just the nasty response the letter to the editor that it was published about how how our views were not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I I I love that uh, that yeah this this great uh, you know <laughs> what what side of the Huey Lewis coin do you fall on? Oh, it was it was so I we just <laughs> shredded him and 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 gave like this glowing review to. Southside because hey Southside Johnny you know you you're there because you're gonna have a good time with South you know exactly what you're gonna get and Huey like it 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 just we just took him down hard it's hard to be the opening act I mean it's it's not easy because they're they're not there to see you but your job is to get the crowd warmed up and get them excited uh, and in many ways they're already excited they've been waiting weeks for this and now they have to sit through you to get to to what they showed up for right yes yeah. yeah but imagine imagine you're the you're the headliner and Jimi hendrix opens for you you know like that would that would probably stink okay did you ever hear yeah. um that he actually opened in the 60s in the mid 60s he opened for the monkeys i i kind of remember that wait please keep going yeah uh, he he opened, and and I think it was kind of a disaster because you had a lot of preteens and and very young teenagers who were there to see essentially a boy band, right? I mean, it was the it was the oh. discount Beatles in many ways, and right. uh, and here's Jimi Hendrix coming out with a, a completely new sound. It had a lot more of an edge to it. Um, it just just an odd choice in retrospect. I I cannot imagine that. I, I can't imagine what it felt like in those rooms when when he came out and started doing what he did. Yeah, that's you know that's so funny. Yeah, no, you're right. Oh, that, yeah, that would stink. That would just be. Because <laughs> you, you knew that guy had something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure yeah, I mean, hard on him, like you said, it was the wrong audience for for Hendrix at that moment in time. But they've probably, if you meet them in the street now, would be like, 
oh yeah, I, I saw Hendrix before you knew, you knew who Hendrix was, you know, <laughs> even though I was pulling, you know. I was I was too young to appreciate the gift I was being given at the time. Oh, very good. Was that very nice? Yeah. Well, so student journalism, uh, though that that led you into. I mean, it was a good early experience to set you up for everything you've done since. From the sound of it, um, tell me a little bit more about early career and sort of how you got to where you are now. Oh, sure. Uh, let me see. So I worked on a a couple of magazines in New Jersey uh, and then wound up moving to Chicago and working on a few magazines in Chicago and then got hired by Reed Business that was Connors and that was like the the hot media company for B2B at the time and I was so excited to be there and I was there for about 20 years and was able to move up within the company and just had a really a great experience ending with um, being general manager of residential and commercial construction. So a lot of website launches, and actually I ran digital for one of the divisions overall, and um, uh, data, events, we came up with big ideas and made them happen. We were on the Today Show, and we did like an eight-week program there, and we came up with Show Village that still exists today, which is really nice, and just a, a lot of different things. And then when uh in 2010 reed got out of it i uh i decided to see if i was good and i, and I worked at a few different media companies running them or being in charge of digital and you know there's something about construction market that either you you fit in or you don't and i i didn't feel comfortable in the other markets but i feel really comfortable in this one I just like that everyone has the same agenda and they know that we're all going to be in this together for a long time. If, if that makes sense. It's not a transaction that you have with people. Instead, it's, you know, I've, I've got to be careful. I have to prove that this relationship is of value. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, so a year and a half or more, uh, this commercial architecture became available to purchase and I, and I wanted to buy it actually when I was at Reed, but they wouldn't sell it to us. And, uh, with a backer, that's an owner developer, we purchased it. We did a ton of research to figure out who our target should be, uh, how to best communicate with them, continue to audit that pretty much weekly. And, uh, now we've been doing it for a while and it's been you know, just a, I don't know, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but it's been like a blessing to be in a place where you know you should be. It, it's interesting because I, I think, you know, from what you're talking about with your, your history uh, in the medium, and then, and then also you're moving into specifically commercial architecture, you've been here through the advent of digital work and through this sort of, um, you know, all through web 2.0 and then to where we are, you know, in, a, in the modern era. And at the same time, there's this trajectory of print media and there's this trajectory of architecture growing and developing as well. Uh, and it's interesting to, to consider that you're there on those, those multiple tracks and really seeing all these things develop and, and grow as time has moved on. Are there any interesting parallels or insights that you get from that? 
Well, for the for the within the market and within the media that that provi provides them information, is that where you're going? Because what I'm thinking is, yeah, now is literally the best time to be in B2B, and so many B2B companies are falling apart, and it's because they're holding on to like antiquated revenue streams and antiquated thinking. And right now, I mean, architects have so much available to them for information where when I was at Reed and we introduced online education, that was like a big deal. And that became a big revenue stream for us, but it was, it was new and it was still fresh. There were a few competitors out there, but not the way we were doing it and, and it worked. And now that's just a common thing, right? Is, is online education for architects. But everything is about them. And if you focus in on that audience and what they need and how to deliver it to them in a way that they want to consume it, today is the best time to be in media. I really think so. But you know, I have so many people who are buying it. We're like, are you nuts? Why would you put money in a media company, a B2B media company? Are you crazy? And uh we still get that sometimes, but I, I, I sincerely believe just the many different ways that you can communicate with your audience in a meaningful manner is just amazing and just wonderful. Well, I think I think that's what's really important is what you're touching on there is as many ways as you can communicate with them. And that is that's core for any media company right now, but especially one that is in an industry that maybe grows at a slightly different pace than the rest of society. Like B2B tends to sort of take its cues a lot of times from B2C and is often seen as a couple of years behind, but that diversity of communication is what's really important because as things speed up over time, um, as things develop much more quickly, you have, not only the opportunity, but the responsibility to be right there as it does, I would think. Yeah, yes, exactly. Well, and, and well, responsibility, responsibility to the backers, right? <laughs> that we don't blow their, their, their enrichment. Um, but for our audience, we have to prove it every time they have any brand interaction or we've lost them, right? If we, if we do something that they question, they're probably not going to come back to us. And maybe we do something questionable on social media, not quite, you know, not like, you know, bad photos or something, but maybe something that doesn't really resonate, they're not going to consume our other products. So right. we, we're very, very careful about considering, okay, how, what do they want from us and how do we, how do we do it? But maybe even. I mean, that's wrong, you know, not what they want from us. What do they want probably is the best way in terms of information. And then we have to scramble to figure out how to make sure that we give it to them in a way that's comfortable. What are the ways in which you keep tabs on what they want? I think uh, that's really important. It's one of the things that uh, those of us who are in marketing um, and certainly the companies that are providing products and services, you know, it's one of the biggest things that people try to focus on or people the one of the biggest insights that people try to get, I think is what I want to say. How do we know what people want? Um, you know, what are the ways that you stay in touch with that? Yeah, no, that's, 
No, that's great, right? And then, because no matter what I say right now, you can say, well, there's a Steve Jobs quote or Henry Ford. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's always a Steve Jobs quote. <laughs> so I'll cautiously enter that portion of the dialogue. Look, um, this, this is just what we do, right? And, and it's, it's really important from the start that this is part of how we make content is um, our platforms are associated to an individual subscriber when we can. Uh, maybe it might just be what their occupation is or something lighter or region or something. And we're watching that and we're watching what kind of consumption is happening on the website. And when we send a new newsletter out, you know, who, who's, who's doing it, right? And if we find that the target isn't the consumer, it's someone else within a company or some other type of individual, then we, we realize, okay, we're off the mark. Okay. Either we didn't have the right headline, we didn't deliver in the right way. Like, okay, let's, let's play a few things until we make sure that our specific audience it's resonating with. So we have, I mean, and that's one of the many beautiful things about digital, right? Is that you, you can see that. And we have a social media um, director, a VP of social that uh, teaches college on social. And they were like, we're not going to, I'm not going to give you big numbers right away, despite what you want. And I'm like, oh man, when, when we talk to people, we want to have more numbers than a client has. And the back thing was, no, you want the best people engaged. And I'm like, yeah, of course, but make them, make them big numbers. And uh, so there's a real thoughtfulness to our social media approach that I appreciate. Um, and off of that, like what they're doing is they're continually auditing and saying, are these the right people? And when we get a comment, is it the audience that we want? And for the print title, which by the way, I, if we met 15 years ago and you said, ah, in 15 years, we're going to be talking about a print magazine. I would have laughed <laughs> and said how dumb you were. <laughs> now the audience wants it and we're tracking it by doing pulse studies each week and when an issue goes out we also either do an ad study to understand you know what ads they consume so it's a service to our clients but also really getting a handle on what they were reading and what their experience was like and to make sure that it was the right one. And the publication that we're producing is print and digital, but it's different than anything else in the market because we found that our target audience wasn't really reading any of the B2B publications out there. Um, they were reading European design magazines because they want something beautiful. You know, like, you know, I'm on the I'm on email all day. I'm working in the design tools and when I get a magazine, I want to relax. I want yeah. images and I want a certain type of experience. And that's why they were going to it. So we, we literally just tested a few different magazines and um, found out what they wanted. And that's what we did. And we went through 10 potential 
art directors until we got the right one for this. I mean, wow. Great. But it took forever because we couldn't go to a traditional uh, consumer or B2B art director because they're so used to, okay, well, there's certain sections to a publication and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the reader knows that they go over here for a feature well, and they know, and we're like, no, <laughs> no, we, we want that every issue is evolving from what we just learned. It is, it is really different. And um, it's interesting for me to hear you talk about the whole tangibility aspect of it. Uh, and the fact that we do experience digital fatigue. And I think that in this past year, a lot of people have experienced that in a way that we never had before. But I'm reminded of an analogy given by a graphic designer uh, from the 90s named David Carson. And what he said was that print is like fire. Um, in the early days, we needed fire for every basic need, whether it be cooking or heat or light. And over time, as technology increased, we didn't rely on fire as much, but we still need it for certain things. You need it for your pilot light and you need it for a few other things, but you need it for ambiance. It becomes an aesthetic choice uh, that we want a crackling fire in the fireplace. We want to light candles. We want certain experiences. And he saw print as becoming more in line with that, you know, tax forms and that kind of thing are not going to need to be on paper quite as much anymore, but you do still want to sit down with a book. You still do want to have that experience. I mean, I get a letterpress Christmas card from an artist friend of mine, uh, and it means much more to me than the email that I got from someone. Right. Isn't that funny? And it, and, and things go into a box that in, 30 years, you're going to open and be like, oh, I remember receiving this. We're, yes. we're in, in email. We'll never have that. No. I, the other thing I've always told people is nobody's ever going to put grandma and grandpa's love letters on a thumb drive. <laughs> oh, sounds so, that sounds like actually what you, what you just said. Now I'm thinking, you know, that's a business opportunity for someone. <laughs> How do you put grandma and grandpa on a thumb drive? <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> but I like that too. When you said, it's true. All of a sudden, like, who would think Yankee Candle would be? You know, you're shelling out all this money for these candles because you want that that smell and that ambiance. You're you're absolutely right. It's just we still wanted fire. We wanted it differently. Yes, we we wanted it uh, at times where we didn't need it, uh, and it used to be purely about need. So I, I think that the reading experience is very much like that. And that, you know, that brings me to one question that I had on my list here is, is if there are once hot trends that you've seen fallen off in the last year or two, obviously with the, the pace of business and the pace of technology moving, but also with the um, tremendously unique situation that we've had globally in the past eight to 10 months, you know, what, where do you see these, these trends moving? Is there anything that surprised you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, man, you know, there's so much to talk about on that. And especially the last few years, because, uh, you know, no, no matter what, whatever political angle you might be coming from the last four years created dialogues, right. And on a lot of different types of issues. 
And it was very interesting, you know, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have predicted. So as a result, like when we talk about trends, I don't know, like we're kind of in an interesting point. I, we've obsessed like everyone else, what's going to happen as a result of the pandemic. And we did a program with Gensler and Gensler did all this research that demonstrated that the ones that are having the hardest time working from home were um, the more um, uh, Gen Y and millennial or young millennial, <clears throat> excuse me, because they needed the feedback. Now, I think millennials are in forties now, right? Everyone's growing up, but, but sure. the girls like start a career, they wanted the feedback and they can't get it remotely where the more experienced people were loving working from home, not having to deal with the commute and having the flexibility. So it's like, that was really, I thought very interesting out of that. Anyway, so we've obsessed, you know, that we've had dialogues about now every building is going to be a healthcare type building, you know, where you're going to really consider, uh, well, the, the, the safety, the, that's always going to be part of it, but you know, for the health as a result of the pandemic, this is where I am right now and talking with again, a lot of different people. It seems like after the election and into this year, people just want it to go back the way it was. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if we're going to make progress. They just want to. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the interesting thing is a pandemic like this uh, was never a part of our modern life growing up, right? I mean, connections have been drawn to mm -hmm. 1918 uh, and the Spanish flu, but nothing that, that anybody who's living and working today has has really ever experienced is like this. And I'm thinking now about how movie theaters are going to be designed in the future because we remember this happened. We know it can happen. So are designs going to start to have availability for that kind of thing built in uh, my, my neighborhood uh, you know, pub, it's like this English pub and they have these plexiglass dividers up now in this, uh, this very traditional kind of atmosphere. And I wonder if those things are always going to be there from now on. Um, you know, how are, th how are things going to change within that built environment, both at the macro level, uh, but also at the micro level? You know, I, I, look, I'm with you. And I think that's fascinating. Really. It, it, and it, it's great dialogue. But really, the last two or three weeks, I'm like, I think everyone's just going to scramble back to old behavior. And I think, you know, all of the thought that we've put in and, and the meaning isn't going to have that much impact. And, and, I, and I've talked to a number of owners and developers about some building product manufacturers that are introducing new products that will achieve really basically what you're talking about. And they're like, you know, I'm not going to spend the money unless it's really going to have a direct correlation to, you know, some benefit to us. Sure. And so market forces and, and demand would drive that. Certainly. Right. right. I mean, yeah. And it's not everybody that's looking at it that way, but, but still it's, it's back to, Okay, what's the what makes business sense? You know, I'm going to have a sustainable building as a developer because I know it's going to equal these types of things for me. I'm going to get 
more per square foot. Uh, a lot of companies have brands they want to associate with this issue. Our building will help them. Uh, the, the performance of that building will help us save money long-term. All those different things make financial sense. That makes sense. And I think that uh, if you had asked me a year ago what the number one concern would be in the performance of a building, I probably would have immediately gone to environmental. I would have gone to uh, clean and efficient. Mm -hmm. And clean means something different now. And uh, I think that surfaces that are more resistant to viruses or microbes, but also are easy to clean, are easy to clean frequently. I do think some of those things are going to stay. That's a good point. Uh, Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. You know, and <laughs> again, like so much interesting stuff you could talk about and, uh, on that topic. And you're you're absolutely right. And I I don't want to come off as like, nah, none of it matters. It's just, I just see this craving for just, can we just go back the way it was? Yeah, we are going to want that return to normalcy. I think, I think there are going to be changes in habits and I think that we're going to have to meet those, but it's, mm -hmm. it's probably going to be less overt than we're thinking right now because everything's very fresh in our minds at the moment and we're not out of the woods yet. I'm just thinking probably and it should have happened years ago, those mints on the way out of a diner probably are never going to come back. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because instead of a mint, I'm, I'm uh, instinctively looking for the hand sanitizer on my way out the door. Right. Right. I think that, yeah, I agree with you. That's going to stay. Like we're going to be very conscious of when we touch our face and, or yeah, or in public bathrooms, they have those uh, those little little foot plates now, where you can like step on it and use use your foot to get the door open. I would have been on board with that ten years ago. Yeah, I agree. That just made sense. It just wasn't being um, adopted, right? Right. Or, yeah, adopted. And also for the elevators, what they're what they're talking about doing, and some have already done. It just yeah, like you always knew it didn't make sense the way we were washing our hands, and then. Maybe using absolutely to open the door or something. Well, the, the stakes were lower, um, you know. But I, I'm also thinking about HVAC and that kind of thing. Um, you know, as we consider things like UV lights, um, you know, they're they're doing more and more research. We think differently about those than we did six months or twelve months ago. You know, you, you're right. You're turning me around from my my two three weeks of, eh. You know, you, no, you're absolutely right. We're going to be much more conscious about the air that we're breathing and, and getting the flu now will be unacceptable, right? We're going to be like, well, have we done everything to prevent the flu? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to change your mind. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I was kind of giving up, but <laughs> But you know, it's true, though, that nobody has a crystal ball, right? So we can we can offer conjecture all day. But I think if we've learned anything, it's that uh, we don't really know what's going to happen next. Yeah, and it, it's just so surreal right now, too. Yeah, I, I mean, like you're sitting, I, I'd assume, right now in your home, like you sat a year plus ago. Like nothing's really changed that much, but people are dying. 
And, uh, you know, so we, we do, we, we think, we think so much differently about the way that we're interacting with each other and the, across the board, the stakes are higher. And I think that's as much group responsibility as it is personal responsibility, right? We have to be responsible with ourselves. Um, but also think a little bit more holistically. And so I, I do think that would fall to the job of the architect, um, yeah. the facility manager, yeah. um, you know, the, the people who are not only planning a building, but also overseeing its use. But, you know, to be a champion of who you just named, they've, they've already realized that they have to focus on the occupant. They, they were pretty much already there. Like, they knew if there wasn't a good experience, what they did, it wasn't going to work. Right. So they've been very good about human centric design, um, really understanding how a community interacts with the buildings and things like this. So it's just another step maybe in that logic, I would think. Yeah. So, so the pandemic in that sense hasn't necessarily changed the way the commercial architects are designing or specifying materials, but it would course correct it a little bit, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take an example, like, like flooring, right? So probably beforehand and, and now you're, you're thinking about natural materials, like, you know, what's the human experience, you know, how is it a positive impact on the environment and the building and that kind of statement? But if it doesn't have durability, um, it's not safe. Like it's raining outside and someone's going to slip. Uh, that maintenance isn't out of control and that it's the right cost. You know, it's all those basic things still have to line up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we've, we've, we've looked at that in the past with non-slip. Also with, with ability to clean. Uh, to do a good job cleaning it easily without a lot of harsh chemicals, mm-hmm. and and that's where you know you want to you want to like obliterate those microbes, those uh, those those viruses and that kind of thing. But at the same time, you don't want to use chemicals that are so harsh that they actually create a bad environment. I'm thinking in a hospital with people uh, who already are are you know compromised somehow, uh, perhaps with with their their breathing ability, um, and so. Right. You, you, you have to find your balance there of being safe, but also, you know, not uh, not creating a bigger issue by the chemicals that you're using. Right. Right. But, you know, with a lot of building materials, it's almost taken for granted. Right. If I'm going to. You know, I guess to staying on flooring, if I'm going to. Choose a manufacturer that has a name that's been in the market. I've met their people, maybe saw them on a show, saw their ads, saw this, you know, had, had an experience with them, probably already taking for granted that they're going to offer certain things, right? So what you just hit on too is like, okay, well, I knew it was usable for the lobby, but when there's some life issues within this section of the hospital, can it perform? And that's maybe what the flooring company has to really focus in on now and not necessarily just durability and you're right. That right. Would be more of a resonator because they just assume 
certain things are already built into that product. As we talk about COVID and as we, as we get up on that one year mark of that initial lockdown where everybody fundamentally changed the way that they communicated with each other. We fundamentally changed the way that we did so many things. How do you anticipate the incoming administration's views and policies um, and how they're going to impact commercial design? You know, I, it, that is such a tricky thing to respond to. Again, crystal ball. Yeah, it's just so, but I think that I'm going to take away my personal opinions. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. please, please understand. I have, I do have a personal perspective on this is that, um, I think there's, you know, there's going to be requirements now that are going to be in, for some cases, unruly and, and costly. And I mean, you know, the, understanding what they are and how to navigate through them is going to require a lot of education on everyone's part. And I think right now, as we're entering this year, there are a lot of aspirational um, um, issues to be conquered, and and they're being brought up. And obviously, that's that's always good. But um, I think. Actually, I know from when you're making a building, it becomes complicated and it's already so complicated. It's almost impossible in a way, you know, and somehow or other it happens. And now there's going to be a complexity that's I don't know, just unruly. And I think and for a lot of. A lot of building types, it might feel unfair. I think that because so many of the changes that we have to make are sweeping and also because there has been some anticipation about things from a sustainability standpoint, as well as from a um, sort of pandemic related standpoint, do you think the market is going to respond to those new requirements quickly? Or do you think that we're going to have to have a period where it's open for anybody to to innovate something? Yes. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it, it's going to create a stress on the system that's a perfect opportunity, as you're implying, for innovation. Um. In, in, in all different ways. Um, I, my, my, my concern is that we still remember the fundamentals that when you're building a building, you have social responsibility and you know, the occupant safety is foremost and all these different things anyway, that whatever the regulations are might be a couple of clicks from how you were already thinking. But uh, yes. I think for some, it's going to be difficult. One of the, one of the mottos that we have at Godfrey um, is that we, we love B2B because all of the companies that we work with help to make the world work better. 
And I think that this is one of those times where that is a heavier burden to bear. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing those who are going to rise to the challenge and truly come up with things that can be beautiful and be functional and also be compliant with the needs that we have as a society moving forward. Right. But I, I still want to say the needs of the society moving forward should already have been in our dialogues. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think for a lot, a lot of professionals within our industry, especially, I think our industry is, has really been a, a leader in many ways in these areas. Um, but uh, it, it, I, I think it was, it's a natural next step for a lot. Right. Yeah. Well, along with that, one of the questions I was going to ask is, is what is the primary way that your industry makes the world a better place? Um, and I think that, you know, you could, you could interpret that in, um, in the, the context of architecture itself, uh, or even your specific industry, which is keeping a pulse on architecture, keeping a pulse on commercial architecture. Uh, what's the primary way right now that you would say that that makes the world work better? Wow. Um, you know, actually, I'm, I'm pausing not because I'm trying to find something. There are just so many different ways that architecture positively impacts the world. And from how, you know, parts of the world that are dealing with issues we don't even think about and how they're addressing it, and then as well as for here. And, and the idea that we have, like, um, certainly not dealt with racial issues at the level that they should have been and they should be behind us. Architecture considers that and how communities come together. And I don't, there are just so many different examples on, 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 on the positive impact. So for the, for our role is we're in a fortunate spot is that we get to talk to a lot of people all day and find out what they're thinking and we do the 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 surveys and we're doing stuff on social and you know we're sending out content and we see how people respond to it and we're in dialogue with the audience right so that's an awesome seat to have so our role is to take the most complimentary and best ideas and 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 feed them back right so like this conversation you you've brought up stuff that and you changed my thinking on a few different things and I'm immediately like, oh, you know, I want to share that with this person or, or that, you know, um, that's, that's our, our role. And I think now even more, we want the speed of that communication. So if someone does have a great idea or a great perspective that it gets out and it's wonderful not having to worry about, well, our print issue deadline is in three weeks. We should include it in the print issue mm-hmm. that. Like right now, we could end this discussion and I could get this out to a large audience, what I learned. And that's, in a way, my responsibility, right? Yeah, I I think that that in your role, it it really is. um, You're you're there to lead an ongoing discussion and 
the print publication is the digest of the highlights and the and the bigger trends and then some more specific, you know, month by month news. But the conversation is sort of this organic thing that's happening all the time. Right, right. And we we talk about the the print and I just I'm, I'm liking talking about the print right now because just because you know everyone would think it would be gone but we think about the print as a marketing piece for dialogues you know um right and what well, not not the whole package it, it's something you can sit with and i think to your earlier point it's something you can sit with and ponder more um we tend to be very either dismissive or reactionary when we're looking at things in social or on blogs um you know, scrolling through, looking at a headline, do I want to read that or not? But in a magazine, in a, in a print publication, it really is, you know, time to sit and really digest and savor and ponder, um, you know, and so that's helpful for some of those, those bigger conversation pieces. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we learned, it's kind of in line with where you were going, is we, you can't send out any more like bad paper same old tiny photo type content that it's disrespectful to your audience. And we're spending more money than our original business plan allowed on, on paper and design and all those elements, because that's the only way that this audience feels respected. You know, yeah, I'm giving you some of my time, do it in a way where, you know, you're being pulled. Yeah. Well, I, I noticed uh, 10 or 12 years ago, magazines across the board started to just be more of a pleasure to pick up. Uh, there's the, the the different finishes that they have on the, the cover stock. And they're just, uh, you know, some of them have that that finish where you feel like if you had four of them, you could put your couch on them and move it across the carpet more easily. Um, you know, it's it's just that right. that that feel that uh, it feels more premium and it it's not cheap. Right. And I think it's like, it's a book, you know, it's like a, it's something that somebody wants to retain, but, but where the majority, like we have, we're not unlike others is that we have a multitude larger audience digitally than we do for that piece. Right. And we have a similar type of responsibility that they feel that when they interact with whatever we put out is that same with that same level of respect. Right. Well, and those are the folks then that you are going to then be able to attract and capture and turn them hopefully into more long-term customers. You're going to be able to turn them into those people that actually seek your work out on a regular basis versus, um, you know, just sort of that, that quick drive by that, that happens in digital. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when you're talking, I was just, I was thinking just a few minutes ago, you are saying, it's like, yeah, a lot of social media is like going through your junk mail, isn't it? And then when you see something good, then you stop with your junk mail, right? Like, oh yeah, that just grabbed me. And that's what we're trying to do with social too. But it's, it's literally like, okay, I'm, I'm happy throwing things out. Dismissing makes me feel like I'm cleaning my inbox. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, do you have any big plans in the near future for the publication that you can share with us? Oh yeah, sure. 
Um, we're doing, we're entering in to what we're calling the biggest idea to ever hit B2B media. And we believe it is. And we were originally going to out of the gates this year, introduce it to the market and then saw that it would, it would just be too much. So when we have another, a couple of big ideas that we've been executing on and with the pandemic, they've been slow. So we said, you know, just for credibility too, until everything is working exactly the way it's supposed to on these other ideas, let's just, let's just slowly phase this in. So I can only talk about the first phase if, if that's okay, but I think it, it'll start giving me an idea of where we're headed. I, I've actually been like literally holding my breath here when you said the biggest, the biggest <laughs> idea ever hit B two B media, uh, go big or go home. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the big, <laughs> to, you know, because all I want to do is tell you what it is because I'm 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 so excited about. It. But um, just to give you a little bit of flavors, we need to go beyond how we do case studies and how we do product selection and how we interact as uh, as a community and we're very confident that this will be a revolution so anyway but so, so the first, am, so the first phase intrigued. yeah <laughs> well um the, so the first phase one and we're looking at it as three phases and uh for phase one we are working with uh, the city of Chicago on, on um, about a half mile square block of at risk community. And one of the things when we left Chicago, people were like, wow, you must be tough. You're from Chirac. And we're like, are you kidding me? Chicago is probably one of the easiest places you could live. It's just, unfortunately, there are these blocks where kids go to play and they get killed and this is the United States and no one's really well obviously no one's really figured it out because it keeps going and you hear reports on the weekends about what happened and it yeah. has to end and and you can do that through the built environment so phase one is we're working with the University of Illinois and they have a really really smart leader for their um, urban planning um, area. We're working with their master's degree students and like a handful of uh, graduating seniors and examining this few, you know, few square blocks and working with the city, working with developers, architects, building product manufacturers and others. I'm okay. You have all these plans and it seems like there are plans every few years and, and you drive through and you always have an idea that you think should happen. But what are the dynamics to really change the lives of that community? And more importantly, not gentrify, you know, where you're just moving people out of their homes because that has to end. Yeah, well, that is really one of those areas where architecture and social understanding and being very purposeful about helping those who need it um, really converge. And I do love the fact that architecture can be a part of that. I think it's a key part of it. 
as we were, we've been going through these dialogues too, is that building product manufacturers can be even more important than ever before. These communities, what we're talking about is how do you bring economic opportunity to the residents that are there right now? And yeah. some of it has to do with bringing agriculture in. Well, you know, there are a number of companies with green roofs that have been very successful and can bring that technology. And for tech centers and what that would look like and training areas and multifamily, what does it look like when you have a population that's been living in this type of economic situation and now you're moving into another type of building? How do you make it so it's, it's comfortable and it can reference things, right? So you, there's, a, there's a lot that a building product manufacturer now can really engage in that I don't think they necessarily had before. It's not, I don't think it's going to be just, well, we're better, we have a better warranty, or we have this, and we have that, or you can call our service desk. Or, you know what I mean? It's going to be, yeah. it's going to be, I think building product manufacturers now have the, this enormous opportunity to, to say, hey, we want to be part of this social change, and we want to be part of the ideas while they're being formed on how to achieve them. So is there a way that people that, that readers, uh, people can interact with that content right now? Have you, have you started rolling that out yet? Or is there something people should be looking for? Oh, great. Uh, we're just started creating it. We put together the group. Uh, we're working again with the, with U of I, there's a Chicago studio. It's wide up in square feet in the South loop where the content is being created throughout the day. Initially, we'll be doing it as roundtable discussions with a lot of video interviews from key constituents. That includes obviously people from the neighborhood who have to have a voice and the city of Chicago. And I, I mentioned developers and architectural firms and finance people. So while the students are gathering information and understanding what the plans have been in the past, we're bringing the real life situation because again, you could drive by that neighborhood and probably come up with three or four really good ideas on how to make those individuals lives better. But until you understand the dynamics of the city and what everyone needs for that to occur, it's just driving by. Right. Right. I mean, it takes a vision that's, that's rooted in an understanding of the, the history and, and personality of the area and um, empathy. And as a graphic designer, uh, that's that was what my training was in. Um, you know, empathy is always really vitally important because you need to be designing something for someone to use. You need to design something for someone to read. And in this case, it's designed on a whole different level. And so uh, having an empathy and a really a proper understanding of the nuances of the area, I would think would be would be vital to that pro process. Yeah, absolutely. And how many times the people that live there have been faced with someone from the outside saying, oh, I'm going to make your life better. Mm -hmm. People have to be incredibly cynical. Are you kidding me? You know, I've heard this so many times or, you know, what are you, a politician? You're going to make right. promises and never come back. So we're really going on a path that can be fulfilled and we're going to use our platform and this new B2B media approach um, 
to make sure we're as accountable as everyone else. I'm I'm going to be watching that with a lot of interest and I would hope that uh, you maybe in a year's time you'd want to come back and and talk with us more about that project in in particular because I think we could probably do a full show talking about that and and what you've learned and how it's going. Oh great. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. That's that's wonderful. Dean, I deeply appreciate your time today and uh, and before we go, I wanted to ask based on your expertise, uh, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to B2B marketers? Uh, yeah, start with the audience. It has nothing to do with us. You know, we, 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 we've, we've grown up like, you know, you know, well, we're educated and we make the right decisions. It just has to be an obsession with the audience and just be so open-minded. That's it. Which is exactly how you would avoid booking Jimi Hendrix opening for the monkeys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, this has been a wonderful discussion. I really, really appreciate uh, everything that you brought to the podcast today and, uh, and, and for your time. So thank you again uh, for agreeing to, to sit with us. And uh, I would, would love to stay in touch and, and talk to you again in the future. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate what you bring. And um, being the creative director for, the, for, for Godfrey just shows the quality of the organization. So thank you. Thanks very much, Dean. Take care. Take care. Bye. Marketing to Complex Industries is presented by Godfrey, a B2B marketing agency for industries like yours. Godfrey is built for technical products, discerning buyers, and intricate buying cycles. For more information, visit godfrey.com.